from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News. Uh, today, we bring you Chip Crashes Crowdcube servers, one-click checkout firm Bolt raises $393 million, and William Shatner blasts into space. All this and much, much more on today's show. Uh, but before we start, we want to tell you about something we've been cooking up here at 11FS and have a quick word from our sponsors. The evolution of financial services has opened up a whole new world of possibilities for banks. But to harness those opportunities, they need to break free from traditional constraints. Our new report, in association with Infosys Finical, explores how banks can overcome these challenges to see the full benefits of a truly digital world. Find the report at bit.ly forward slash banking business models. Temnos is a world leader in banking software helping over 3,000 banks deliver outstanding banking experiences to more than 1.2 billion people. Scale 2021 is Temenos' dedicated, free-to-attend virtual developer event. It includes customer presentations, product demos, roadmap sessions, as well as opportunities for you to speak with Temenos experts. You'll also hear insights from industry leaders on current technology trends and how they impact banking today. Whether you're a developer, consultant, or business user, Discover the latest in banking technology with Temenos Software. Search Temenos Scale 2021 to find out more. Welcome to episode 572 of Fintech Insider. My name is David Breer and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host for today, Benjamin Enser. How's it going, Benjamin? Really well, David. Really well. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, do you know what? It's, uh, I mean, me and you on the 11FS town hall earlier on was watching our internal version of uh, Bake Off, weren't we? Which was hilarious, I'm not going to lie. So I've, uh, my ribs hurt a little bit because it was just funny. So it's been a fun week, I have to say. It was comic, some comic cakes. We need to get uh, consent from our GC NAS to release that footage onto LinkedIn. But when we do, you guys are going to find it very entertaining. I'm not going to lie. But uh, anyway, of course, as always, we're joined by some super duper awesome guests making a welcome return to Fintech Insider. I'm delighted to welcome Simon Rabin, who is the founder and CEO at Chip. Hey, Simon, uh, a busy week for you guys. How's, how's it going? Yeah, very, very, very busy. Very, very good week. Um, great to be here. Thanks, Thanks for having me. No worries at all. Well, we'll get to the story very, very soon. But uh, making also their FinTech Insider debut, we have Helena Murphy, who is the managing partner at Raising Partners. Helena, how's it going? Yeah, great. So good to be here. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Can you give us a, a bit of a brief introduction to Raising Partners? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's really three fundamentals to our business at Raising Partners. We have our core advisory services where we support entrepreneurs from kind of pre-seed all the way through to series B with their fundraising. We have an angel syndicate where we invest in businesses that are making a significant impact on people, processes and the planet. And all of that is underpinned by Runway, which is our go-to guide for raising investment here in the UK. Very good. I mean, on the tip of everybody's tongue, when uh, shortly after they've always had a good idea, is like, how the hell do I pay for this? So, uh, you know, getting people at each of those parts of that process to get going is uh, is difficult. So, I mean, we'll we'll come to this as part of the stories that we talked to a little bit later on. But uh, but yeah, that's uh, it's always the problem, isn't it? I've got loads of good ideas, got no bloody money to do it. So uh, we can figure that out, I'm sure. Anyway, let's get on with the news because there's a hell of a lot and a hell of a lot for us to get through. But 
I think probably it makes sense with Simon being here to start only in one place. So Chip crashes Crowdcube servers. This was a crowdfund insider piece, but it was covered in a, a number of other places. Money management app Chip opened its crowdfunding round uh, to the general public on Thursday and managed to crash Crowdcube servers at the cash actually rolled into the organization as well. Uh, at the time the story was being reported, Chip was nearly 10 million raised and over 7,000 investors decided to back the company. Uh, the Crowdcube campaign initially launched privately to select shareholders and reach 1 million in under 10 minutes. Uh, Chip's main offering is a savings account that analyzes your transactions and calculates what you can afford to save every few days. Uh, Simon, like, Wow. That's a that's a hell of a reaction. Isn't it nice to know that people think nicely about your company so much to to raise 10 million? Yeah, you it's nice to know you're loved. There was a great stat that um I saw I think Crowdcube shared on Twitter um that last weekend we raised more money than the James Bond film took at the box office. That's amazing. Yeah, great stat. No, it's, it's fantastic. And what makes it even more special is the overwhelming majority of the investment came from our own customers. Um, and we've, you know, we, we're crowdfunding, um, uh, I, I don't know what you can say, uh, OGs, right? We've been doing crowdfunding for quite quite a few years and we've always had sort of like a considerable investment in our, in our communities and our community engagement and tried to carry so many of our customers with us along as we like develop and design the, the product. Um, and it just really, really pays dividends when it comes around to offering those same people the opportunity to invest in the company. Um, it's no surprise that when somebody's using a product, uh, when they've been part of like designing and building the new features and setting that roadmap, they also want to share in the success of it and, and buy shares in the business. Mm. Is that is that a reason to sort of go down this route then, Simon, in terms of uh, crowdfunding route over you know more traditional sort of VC route? Because like you say, if customers love you, then they want a piece of it, right? Yeah. I- I think it has. It certainly has its, its, its benefits. It has some challenges as well. I know uh, Tom Blomfeld wrote a piece a few weeks ago saying, um, when he was kind of writing about his Monzo experience, and he said that um, crowdfunding was by far the worst method of raising capital. It's, it's the most time-consuming, the most expensive, um, uh, something else he said. And I, I completely disagree with him. Um, for us, it's been absolutely fantastic. Because not only has it you know, provided us the capital that we've needed to grow the business, as I said, just... Um, just creates this incredible, engaged, loyal customer base. And the way I see it is when it kind of last weekend, I think we've had over 10,000 uh, people invest in this round. And last weekend, you know, I had 10,000 people sitting at their dinner tables or at the pub or I don't know, the side of the, you know, the, the football football pitch, telling their mates, telling their friends, oh, I just invested in this great business. Yes, yeah, this app I use, um, you know, you should use it too. I've got this like army of advocates, um, which, is, which is incredible. So, um, I, w- I would really recommend sort of consumer businesses that want to and need to engage their um, their communities in in that product development process. You definitely should be crowdfunding. Um, it also makes you really disciplined to respect your your customers and to kind of respect those communities because you know you are um, kind of dependent on them to some extent for the for the money. Um, and I may- maybe comparing that to raising money from a VC, it's like you know VCs. Uh, maybe a little bit more driven by certain um, commercial elements, by you know profitability, unit economics, and your customers are, are, are driven by features, right, and and functionality of the product. So it kind of um, creates a good discipline in a certain direction. I'd recommend it. 
Yeah. What um what do you plan to do with the money? What's the what's on the horizon? Because uh, I mean, were you expecting to get ten million? Um, listen, you ne- you you never expect, and that's the thing with, with crowdfunding. Um, you know, you put a lot of work and effort into marketing it and explaining the opportunity to the customer base uh, for the uh, few weeks before, but you never really know until you launch it. So we don't don't expect anything. Um, we intend to raise uh, a total round of uh, around twenty million pounds. And with some of that coming from institutions, some of that coming from the crowd, we didn't know how how big the crowd element was going to be. Um, it looks like we're going to close off uh, this weekend. I'm not sure when this is going live. It's probably closed by the time that this uh, uh, this is going live. But um, we intend to close on Sunday night. I suspect we'll get about 11 million from the crowd, um, which is is definitely more than we expected. And um, what do we intend to do? Um, we have so much planned in terms of enabling our customers to move their savings from cash into passive investments and to earn uh, a much better return on their savings. Uh, as you said in the, in the intro, you know we started off as an app that analyzed your transactions and helped you save money automatically. We've now evolved uh, much more into a product that's driven uh, around getting people better returns on their, on their savings. Um, at the moment, we're offering the UK's leading easy access uh, cash interest rate, 0.7%, uh, which doesn't sound too exciting, but that's uh, that's what customers come in for initially. Um, and we are really developing some some exciting functionality that's going to enable customers to like seamlessly deposit out of cash into passive investments, into into uh, investment funds, um, and yeah, some other quite interesting ways. I can't say too much about them right now, but other interesting ways for them to earn a return on their savings. Fantastic. Well, I mean, it's amazing to see. I mean, obviously, you've been on the show a number of times before, Simon, and the the company's gone from strength to strength to strength. And, you know, having 10,000 people, as you say, turning up to to be part of this to to move forward, it's a, a really amazing thing. I mean, Benjamin, uh, crowd crowdfunding seems to have no limits, does it, in terms of people really wanting to buy into companies that they believe in? I mean, this is, a, this is the way everything seems to be moving towards, doesn't it? It's such a good validation. I think it creates a real virtuous circle, as, as Simon was saying, because um, by selling to your customers, your customers are people who are passionate or at least you know invested into your business already. So you get more advocates, they spread the word and so on. So there's a huge number of sort of marketing benefits and so on. Um, it does have limits. It's brilliant if you're a retail business. If you're a business to business, you know, that's tougher. Um, in some other sectors, it's tougher and so on. And I think there's a, probably a finite amount of capital you can raise um, from 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 investors, it is. I'm, I'm sure Simon was maybe downplaying the amount of work that Chip had to put in to, to to educate investors and so on. So I think there's a lot of work to it. But I agree with you. I think it's a it's a fantastic way of raising capital. It creates a, a good virtuous circle and it really connects businesses with their customers. It's a little bit like going to back to the old cooperative or mutual business models where businesses were owned by their customers. Um, and that's actually really good to see that coming back into financial services. You know, what's old is new again. Mm, it's interesting. Uh, it's a it, it, really good point on the B2B side of things. Actually, B2B crowdfunding is like really in its infancy. But I wonder if given the, the amount of money that we're seeing in or the amount of opportunity for scale that we're seeing within some of the B2B plays, particularly about embedded finance or banks of service, that actually there might be a uh, there might be an interesting model for that in the not too distant future as well. So uh, you never know, the, the, the fintech inside a crowdfund, you never know, we might get around to that at some point, uh, Benjamin, we'll see what happens. David, if you think if you think about it, what you're seeing with um, like revenue finance with businesses like Pipe, right? You know, you could actually have, uh, let's say you're a SaaS business, you could have your customer actually financing their own revenue through a platform like Pipe, 
Um, so you could almost have, I don't know, like this like de- like crowd debt financing uh, for B2B, you know, from customers in exchange for certain discounts. Um, I think that there's, there's definitely a lot more uh, innovation that we're going to see there. Yeah. I mean, it, it might, that breaks my brain slightly, the model of it. It sounds like when I try to do something in Excel and it's doing a, some sort of circular reference that it doesn't like it doing. But uh, uh, Helena, what, what do you think? How do you think this one plays out? Yeah, I mean, I, I think crowdfunding is is a really interesting and, and relevant way to raise to raise money. We do a lot of it at Raising Partners. Um, we have done a lot of B2B crowdfunds, incidentally, for B2B businesses, which is no mean feat. It is hard to sell B2B crowdfunding opportunities to a, a retail investment um, audience. And we're, we've, we've got a campaign live at the moment, Equips Me on Cedars, and we've got Plum Guide launching on Crowdcube next week. And, and as Simon said, it's, it's definitely not an easy way to raise capital, but I think something that I, I certainly admire about chips raises, Simon's definitely not new to this, to this game. And I think one of the reasons, in my humble opinion, Simon, that you've been so successful in, in raising in this way, and, and particularly with this, this uh, most recent fundraisers, is how engaged you are with that audience on an ongoing basis. I invested in one of chips crowdfunds many, three or four years ago, I think now, and the quality of the investor updates and how engaged that community is and the way you talk to them and actively involve them in the business means that you have this army of followers that are, I don't want to say desperate to give you their cash, but really are so, so bought in. But you have, it's not just the work to to execute on this current crowdfund, but in, in many ways you have been crowdfunding in some sense for, for years by keeping up that momentum over time with the audience and, and engaging them in in each and every stage of your of your growth along the way. So yes, it's it's definitely difficult to do the first few times you do it. Hopefully you're going to tell everyone, Simon, that it's slightly easier as you come to your what what number raise is this for you on on Crowdcube now? It, I wouldn't say it becomes easier, but I, I do agree with you, Helena, that what you do is you kind of build that audience from round to round to round, right? So like as you grow your custom base you build your community on the back of that, um, and you actually see, um, you know, a big, a big chunk of the investment each round coming from the same people and kind of exercising. We have a lot of our early shareholders um, uh, preemption rights, actually, and kind of exercising preemption rights uh, as the uh, as the rounds go on. So I, I wouldn't say it becomes easier, but you build a bigger audience, um, and that um, obviously matures into. In, to a large amount of, of investment capital. My, my advice to companies uh, considering doing it um, or at the early stages of doing it is, yes, you definitely should, but don't think it's a quick it's a quick win, it's not a quick fix. You are going to you know have to push really hard, I think, in some of your earlier rounds, but you keep doing it. As Anna said, you kind of engage the audience, engage the customer base, listen to them, um, actually involve these people in, in your business kind of in between your funding rounds, um, and then you, you'll kind of you'll get that flywheel effect, and you'll catch some momentum. Fantastic! Well, c- congratulations, Simon, on the. I mean, obviously, having customers who love the product that you have. I mean, that's the ambition. That's the that's the thing you strive for. And uh, I think this is this great uh, sort of confirmation that you're uh, well and truly on the right path with that, which is which is great. We are going to have to move on, though. I'm afraid because there's a bunch of other stuff that we need to talk about. So I thought uh, this next- was a podcast all about chips crowdfund. 
<laughs> yeah, sadly not. No. Uh, well, I mean, keep doing it. We'll keep talking about it. All right, we need to move on. Uh, the next story is over on the information. This is one-click checkout firm Bolt raises $393 million at a $6 billion valuation. Um, checkout firm Bolt announced its raise $393 million in a Series D round. Uh, this has been led by an undisclosed London-based venture capital firm. Uh, strange to not announce who the firm was, uh, weird one, but uh, we'll come to why that might be later. Uh, the fundraising brings Bolt's valuation to $6 billion, nearly seven times its valuation in December, according to reports. Uh, Bolt was co-founded in 2014 by tech entrepreneur Ryan Breslow. Uh, pa- Bolt powers one-click checkout for non-Amazon merchants, which lets customers order uh, goods on any site that Bolt ha- is on without having to in- re-input any personal information. In the past year, the company has processed over $1 billion in transactions from more than 300 merchants, including Brook Brothers and Forever 21. Uh, the team over in Bolt had a uh, number of things to tell us on, on this one about their recent funding announcement and really what they plan to do with the money as well. Let's hear from them now. I'm Tina Fan, and I'm the Chief Customer Officer at Bolt, the checkout technology company that has built Commerce's first federated checkout network. Some folks have asked us, how will this funding change things at Bolt? It's going to help us speed up to build products and services more quickly so that we can bring on more retailers, expand geographies, and serve customers better. By 2025, we are projected to have eight out of every 10 U.S. shoppers interact with Bolt, and this latest round of funding is going to help us achieve that ambition. Others have asked us what the funding will be used for, continuing to push on our mission to democratize commerce by making online buying easy, trusted, and consistent for millions of happy shoppers so that independent retailers can thrive. We're in a fast-moving, high-intensity, competitive business, but we don't think workplaces today should look like workplaces of the past. We've started a movement that we call Conscious Culture, and we're taking steps to bridge humanity with execution in our company, such as implementing a four-day work week and many other conscious ways of working. That's a big agenda, but that's what we're hoping to accomplish with this latest vote of confidence. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more from us in the near future. Helena, what do you think on this one? I mean... Series D, $393 million. That's a hell of a round, isn't it? I mean, it, it just it sounds crazy. And, and I think what's, what's really interesting is that it, this is being led by this undisclosed London fund because this has all the hallmarks of, of an American fundraise. And, and that's natural because Bolt is an American firm. And I think that's really sets them up to why they have been able to raise it, quite frankly, in my opinion, is an absolutely crazy level of valuation. I don't know what their business model is or how, you know, dare I ask about where they are on a track to profitability, but that just seems like an insane sum of money on an insane price that can only really come from an American backed venture fund that has, as the company has grown over time and, and raised more and more money, it's almost got this overinflated valuation whereby they need to raise more and more cash because they're obviously burning through so much of it that they need to raise on this higher and higher price and I think what will be really interesting is do we believe that that Bolt is going to exit for in excess of however many billion it's now going to need to exit to deliver the kind of returns it's going to need to deliver to all of those investors I'm really I would love to speak to those funds about how they came to that price of this mm. round the the valuation yeah i mean it's a very high round i mean the valuation seems sky high 
but at a very high round at a Series D, there's a lot there's a lot of equity going out the door at that point, isn't there? Um, I mean, on their on their business model, so Bolt makes money by getting two percent cut of purchases made through its one click checkout, and it has ten million shoppers already signed up. Um, that number is a poten- potential to hit a hundred million once all the deals Bolt has signed up are actually fully activated. So I wonder if actually, I mean, that's a hell of a leap, right? Going from ten million shoppers to a hundred million shoppers. Like, I wonder if basically the signed deal to expand out their remit and expand out their revenue is essentially what's driving the the size of the the, the number. But at a two percent clipper ticket for ten million shoppers, like the the revenue should be huge as well. So like there's some there's something not quite right in my mind in terms of the numbers side of things. But I, I do agree with you. I think I, I'd quite like to go and dig into this one a little bit more. Yeah, I think the interesting question is you know who are the who are the merchants that are doing that because. You know, there are merchants in some sectors with very tight margins who really don't want to be giving up 2% cut of purchases. But then you have other sectors, you know, with higher profit goods, um, high margins, and merchants will say, okay, um, we'll, we'll sacrifice 2% um, for if we can get massive incremental sales. Um, so to me, the real question here is who are the merchants that are backing this? Um, what's it worth it to them? Yes, one click is easier. Yes, it's a bore typing in your credit card details or whatever. Um, but what's Bolt offering that you can't get by offering a whole variety of other payment systems, right? Um, I don't quite see what's in it for the merchants that makes Bolt so attractive. You know, yes, two, three click checkout is boring, but how bad is it? How much incremental sales do you really get? Um, so I'm, I'm curious about the business model here for the merchants. Well, in, in a world where we've got embedded card details in pretty much every browser that everybody uses and Apple pays a thing and Amazon pays a thing, like how many of these things can we have in the market, do you think, until people just stop using them? Exactly. It's going to be it's going to be fascinating. But again, back to your point, uh, like actually, Christ, like 393 million raised Series D. Like um, what do you think possibly can be I always kind of say this with the banks when you look at a billion pound transformation being spent. It's like, what is so wrong that you're spending this amount of money to solve that problem? Um, but it takes a lot of money to to get the talent that you want to to come in through the door. I, I mean, it's interesting. I was sort of reading some of the interesting things about uh, Bolt's uh, sort of company culture and setup that they they've done. And um, they've recently introduced a, a four day work week, which I've always been super interested in. I don't know if anybody's sort of read too much about it, but all of the l- literature seems to imply it doesn't have any effect on productivity. But I I, I can never get my head around how that possibly can be the the case i don't know benjamin if you've uh, ever spent too much time thinking about it um i i like the idea of a three-day weekend um i I, th- I think in practice you end up working working harder um over the days you're working you probably end up doing longer hours and so on yeah maybe at the margins you can cut out some extraneous meetings you didn't need to be in you know maybe the cake contest that we had earlier wasn't the best use of you know a half an hour of our time on the other hand um you know people need you a break take, you take that back benjamin that was the best <laughs> use of time this week. You know, actually, I, you know, I think people do need a break at various points in the working day. It's very hard to concentrate flat out for eight, nine, ten hours. Um, I don't know if that's the key to Bolt's success, though. So, I mean, it's, it's an interesting, interesting piece. Um, but I don't know that four-day working week makes your company more successful 
Helen, it looks yeah. like you're itching to ch- chip in. Yeah, I am. I've, only because we, we do a four and a half day working week at, at Raising Partners and we're a small company. There's only seven of us and we're service based, right? So we have clients and we have investors that we're accountable to. And we, you know, if a transaction is happening, we can't just say, sorry, we don't work Fridays um, and we will deal with your transaction on on a Monday. So we do have a four and a half day working week Um, that we operate during the summer months. So we do it between the first bank holiday of the summer and the last August bank holiday, because that for us in our business works for us. It's our quietest time in terms of transactions actually closing and deals going through. Um, And and quite honestly, we set it up for selfish reasons that there were light nights here in the UK. We wanted to make the most of some summertime and we started it during the height of of COVID. So we were like, you know what, we work really, really hard um, for those four, you know, for for so much of the working week that how can we recoup some of the work-life balance that it takes to to run a company of our size in in, in such a fast-paced um, environment. And it really works for us um, whether or not I would ever have the guts to go down to a solely four-day working week. I don't think so. That sounds great for me as a, as a person, as, a, as an individual, as a parent. Wonderful for me to have a four-day working week. Absolutely can we would we be able to practically run a business that way probably probably not which is sad but that's probably the truth but you know the the french are said to have um said to do the shortest hours of any nation in europe and yet also to be the most productive um you know we know that um exaggerating a little bit but a lot of the french spend the whole of august not working um you know the french appear to have got a better balance than many other europeans and that they do seemingly work slightly shorter hours and are just as productive or more productive in those hours so there is something in it yeah definitely i think it would take a mass kind of adoption though right of if if just a couple of firms were doing it then that makes it really difficult because you're the anomaly as opposed to it being as as you mentioned there benjamin france that's a very much cultural thing right of everyone being on the same wavelength um, I don't think we're quite there yet. Definitely not in the UK. Probably almost definitely not in the US where Bolt are. Yeah. Well, let's see what happens more and more on that. I think it's um, critical mass, essentially. You know, is it, a, is it an employer uh, benefit that actually attracts enough people that makes it critical mass for other people to, to start adopting as well? You know, we would have said the same thing for remote working probably two years ago and with everybody, uh, you know, sort of thinking maybe slightly different about that than they do today. But uh, look at where we all are now, you know. So uh, anyway, we better wrap up this half of the show. Uh, we'll be back with you very shortly. Customers expect more from their digital experience, and their personal finance is no exception. BlueShift empowers fintechs and financial institutions to create secure customer profiles and intentional, relevant experiences for customers. Whether in-app, on-site, in-branch, or anywhere else, BlueShift's Smart Hub CDP helps brands like LendingTree and ClearScore turn data into personalized experiences that increase retention, satisfaction, and revenue. Learn more about BlueShift at blueshift.com forward slash 11FS. There is a better way to hire internationally, and it starts with deal. Everything from contract creation, record keeping, payments, and full-time employment is all in one place for teams all over the world. Companies anywhere can hire compliantly everywhere, thanks to Deal. It's payroll and compliance built for today's worldwide workforce. To learn more, visit Let's Deal forward slash 11FS. That's Let's Deal, D-E-E-L 
com forward slash 11fs and redeem an exclusive offer of three months free when you hire a contractor and 20% for your first year when you hire an employee. Okay, uh, the next story that we have is one that was covered over on the FinTech Times. This is digital payment drives growth as a UK FinTech hits 86% consumer adoption rate. Um, the story uh, sort of repeated in a few places, but the FinTech Times is where we saw it most. Uh, a new report from Plaid says the open finance network and payments platform has revealed that FinTech use and adoption has reached mass scale in the UK, with some 86% of consumers actually adopting fintech in some form or another. Some top-line stats from the Fintech Effect report include UK consumers uh, use an average of 2.8 fintech applications and services. They are managing 67% of their finances online. 76% of Brits now feel confident to use technology to manage their finances. And fintech adoption is set to increase with users planning on increasing the number of digital apps they rely on to an estimated 3.8. Five. Um, I mean, Benjamin, what do you think to this? I mean, the numbers all seem a bit silly when you start using half a fintech app, but maybe that's just their beachhead's not as sophisticated as it should have been. But uh, um, I mean, it's interesting that actually some of these stats I actually thought were quite low, if I'm honest with you. Um, you know, 67% of people using finances online. I thought online banking penetration was a lot higher than that in most major banks. So it's interesting to see what parts or slices of financial services is sort of dragging that down. Yeah, I think sometimes we can get slightly confused because you can look at um, surveys that are just of online people, um, which is, of course, the majority of the population. But, you know, you do have people who are still um, digitally excluded and so on, and that can sort of tilt the figures a little bit. Yeah, I, I was looking at some of these figures and think some of them are a little bit high and some of them seemed a little bit low. But then, you know, it's easy to get out of touch. I suppose the headline isn't surprising. You know, there are, of course, there's more and more adoption of fintech. I think what's interesting is how fintechs, you know, so many fintech brands become household names like Chip <laughs> over over the past um, past few years. I think there's still people who are financially excluded in the UK, just as in other markets are probably not using fintech. So I'm slightly surprised it's as high as 86%. Is it really only 14% of the population are not uh, using anything? Um, but I think the overall story is absolutely spot on that you know fintech is changing people's lives and improving their lives for the better, not just in Britain, but around the world. Yeah. I mean, to your point earlier on, Simon, people have a tendency if they like something to recommend it to, you know, people they love, like their family, you know, and that actually doesn't mean uh, just downwards in uh, the demographics or uh, age groups. But I mean, have you seen a, a sort of a change over time in terms of the the demographics of people who are using your product? Yeah. So, I mean, traditionally or initially, right, fintech products were, were very much, you know, millennial products, right? And it was it was uh, you had twenty year olds, whatever. The average age of someone that uses chip um, is now approaching thirty four, um, which is pretty old, I think, in 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 fintech terms. Um, we're also seeing a really interesting transition, and, and it kind of relates to some of the features we're working on, whereby um, you, you you see basically two generations on the product, um, and actually there's a big opportunity in building the tools that it kind of enable the transactions and the transfers and perhaps the gifting in relation to savings and investing between those two um, between the two generations. I think watch out for that. That's going to be really interesting and successful uh, fintech products are are going to be really effective at like bridging that that um, generational gap, uh, which is which is really cool. Um, the other the the other thing I'd say my, my like anecdotal, completely unscientific uh, view on it is 
if you exclude sort of using your bank app or, you know, your online banking and you, you have quite a tight definition of fintech, um, it still seems to me that, you know, that, that there's a hell of a lot of people out there, um, you know, mass market consumers that are unaware of these products. Um, just the other day, I was talking to my taxi driver about, about Revolut. Um, never heard of it. And I, you know, was absolutely amazed that there's an app that would enable him to, you know, transfer between euros and 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 pounds seamlessly and spend that, and just like couldn't couldn't even compute that, um, how how cool that was. So, um, yeah, my my anecdotal opinion is actually, if you look at pure pure fintech, we've still got a really really long way to go um, before you see mass adoption. Yeah, it, as you said earlier on, Benjamin, it would be really interesting to understand the the slices of. Uh, you, you're always a sucker for like, yeah, but who was asked? Like, it's always about the people in the survey. It's always about the because actually, it's it's very true. I mean, if you're sitting in a business that's all about wealth management, then like almost none of that is done digitally in any way, shape, or form, doesn't it? I mean, it shows. You know, arguably, the fintech is you know a very short distance into the journey that we we have to take because essentially there's all of these different slices of financial services to to really sort of tap at but um the 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 survey I sort of went on to compare the the UK and the US market with uh the UK market coming out ahead on uh, pretty much every every statistic actually in terms of percentage of people paying friends and family or paying bills or uh, using fintech payment products and services more broadly and there's sort of a you know 10 to 15 percent increase to the UK from the US um, with some of that sort of being put down to open banking but I'm not can really convinced that open banking at this stage is really sort of driving those things if I'm honest with you I think it's much more likely that an adoption of digital was more driven by contactless payments and and the knock on effect that that had uh, than it was really necessarily open banking yet um but it's it's interesting to see that actually the uk is is ahead of that group particularly when it comes to like things like peer-to-peer payments you know you you sort of venmo is fabled for such a you know it's verb right in terms of uh, you know people using it and people adopting it and people knowing it so um i mean interesting one to 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 watch benjamin huh yeah, I mean, I think if you want to compare the UK, you know, you need to compare the UK with the Nordic countries, with the Netherlands, uh, maybe even with Canada. I mean, the United States has a fantastically backward payment system. The US payment system has been, you know, famously slow um, and outdated. And that the result of that is that Americans have been slower to adopt, or actually, you know, to some extent, it's accelerated things like Venmo, but Americans are still dealing with checks and so on. Um, you know, other Europeans laugh at the British for still using checks, right? Um on the other hand, you look at the United States, you look at investing, American investing is much more sophisticated than investing in the UK or other European markets. So these country comparisons are interesting when they create lessons for the regulators and help us see what do we need to do to move our own economy forward faster. You know, the States has been a long way behind in payments. It's got a long way to catch up, but it's a long way ahead in other areas. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, with your investment hat on, uh, I mean, seeing all of these opportunities for these numbers to get a lot higher and a lot higher, all of these other slices of uh, financial services that really are yet to really move to digital. I mean, that's good, right? There's still stuff to invest in that actually moves these things forwards, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think what you said about wealth management earlier and how that could be disrupted by fintech is, is incredibly interesting and definitely an area to watch. And I think 
there's certainly a, a long way to go, as Simon was referring to, from a generational perspective and, and their adoption of some of this technology. I mean, bless her, my mum, who listens to everything. So hi, mum. She only started online banking during the pandemic because she was forced to. She, my mum's not that old. She's only just into her 60s. And up until now, she was going into a branch um, to make every kind of payment that she could. Um, so yeah, I certainly think there's definitely a long way to go. Lots of really exciting things that, that we get to see. We're, we're fortunate at Raising Partners on getting to see things quite early as angel investors, um, particularly in kind of new and interesting ways that we can, I guess, revamp, quite frankly, quite archaic processes in payment systems, in um, in wealth management, as we've already said. And yeah, I'm excited to see where, where it's going to go as a sector, particularly as an early stage investor. Just, not, uh, just, just without, uh, again, uh, we've done sample size of one with, with Simon, but not, not to use your, uh, your mum as a sample size of one. Do you think her behaviour makes it sound weird? Do you think the, the idea of going back into the branch will happen again, though, when actually we all get back to, you know, normal, whatever that is? Um, do, do you think almost has she learned that self-service is an easier way or do you think going back is it, it will be part of it? No, I think she's definitely, she's a, a full convert now. She loves it. She's like, I can just send you money straight away on my phone. Look, I just use facial recognition to log into my bank. I'm like, yeah, mom, that's great. We've all been doing it for years. <laughs> um, although I don't know if she will go backwards because, you know, she's she is extremely worried about fraud. She is determined that people are going to hack into her bank. I'm like, mom, someone literally needs your face and your phone to hack into your bank and it's 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 actually quite difficult to hack you um but don't, don't don't make her think somebody's going to take her face that's that makes it even worse like that that's a terrifying proposition isn't it anyway we need to move on all right the next story was over on TechCrunch. this was tiger global backs african fintech mono in 15 million dollars series a round so mono an african startup uh, that helps connect consumers bank accounts to financial applications has raised 15 million in a series a round led by Tiger Capital. Uh, Mono's two offerings are Direct Pay, a product that helps Nigerian businesses to collect bank transfer payments from customers within their web or mobile app uh, without using their debit payments. Uh, the second product is Statement Pages, which allows businesses to access customers' financial accounts without needing a developer. Open finance players in Africa like Mono believe that access to financial ecosystems via open APIs will improve access to financial information and lower the entry cost for the unbanked. Um, we managed to actually have a good conversation with the Mono CEO, Abdul Hassan. Uh, let's hear what he had to say now. What we hope to achieve with the new round that we just completed are three things. Number one is product development. Number two is hiring. And number three is expansion. So regarding our plans for expansion, we hope to work directly with the banks. I truly believe banks are our allies. They can help us with customer education because um, they know these customers. They can do better at customer education than, than anyone. And number two is also working directly with regulators. I believe working directly with regulators can help us define what open banking truly looks like for Africa. And then the third one is building product specific for each country that we launch in. Uh, what works in Ghana might not work in South Africa. So yeah, thank you. 
Very cool. I, I, I don't know about you, but every time somebody starts with I, there's three things, I get nervous that they'll forget the three. Uh, like, uh, and the, I, I don't know if it's just me, but whenever I avoid numbering stuff, because I will always think of another one or I will always forget the last one. So I try and shy, shy away from that. But, but he nailed it. So that's brilliant. But I mean, uh, African fintech seems to be just blowing up right now, right? We, we know, we've known for decades, like there is scale beyond belief in terms of the opportunity. We've got data connectivity everywhere. There's smartphones being adopted faster than anywhere really on the planet, Benjamin. Um, do you think this is the the African fintech movement just really getting the the financial recognition that it really deserves? Yeah, I think people are waking up to the, the huge potential in the continent. You know, there's millions and millions of people there. Uh, lots of people are financially excluded, which creates all the more opportunity. You know, almost to some extent, the worse the infrastructure, the more opportunity there is to come in and build new things. Um, it's brilliant. Um, I'm, I'm loving seeing all the African fintechs that are, that are getting funded. Um, and I think I think we're seeing lots of you know venture capital firms and other investors around the world waking up to the opportunities in Africa, um, which is brilliant. Mm, it's interesting, Helena. What do you think? Uh, is uh, Africa a part of the world you guys have been uh, sort of taking a, a, a bit of a look at, given some of the recent valuations, some of the sort of explosion in terms of companies that are out there? Yeah, absolutely. We actually have a tracker purely dedicated to Af- African opportunities because I think it is. Yeah, it's a really exciting place to be doing business. There's some really great companies operating, particularly out of Kenya at the moment, that we're really interested in to watch how they how they grow over time. I think it's, you know, we operate on a UK-only basis, but I think there's definitely a huge amount of opportunity for global funds and VC funds. I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing people to start operating kind of satellite offices Um in places like South Africa and Kenya and, and Ghana specifically. Um, because I, I guess when we compare investment landscapes, you know, the I, there's a lot of failings with it, but let's go with the US as a gold standard in terms of volume of capital, of risk appetite, of knowledge and awareness of, in, of, of early stage investment and, and venture backing. And you, Europe as a whole is is very much behind, um, and and the UK I would even argue is even further behind that. And we're definitely trying to make a bit of an impact there at raising partners on the UK ecosystem at, at least. But then when we see new opportunities and new um, things that we can get involved in, I think yeah, certainly sub-Saharan Africa is is extremely interesting as a as an opportunity for exciting companies growing and and I hope that there's the infrastructure there to support them in terms of you know how to access the right kind of capital for their businesses so that they can ultimately scale because as we were briefly chatting before the show started you know accessing capital is so that you can grow your business so that you can get through the next gate so you can build your MVP so you can get your product into market so you can get early customers so that you can raise those venture funds later on down the line is is extremely important so i think there's there's definitely something there yeah i mean how, how much do you think um in the market that we're seeing now with african fintech that actually i mean are investors going you know hunting for for fintech startups in in that region of the world given the, the you know the the returns from a, you know how significant they could really be i mean how how much do you think is investors now looking for opportunities to invest rather than uh, companies getting to a sign or a scale of momentum that then requires it. You know, there's a there's a bit of a chicken and egg there, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think there's, 
you know, we bandy around the term unicorns a lot, right? Particularly as investors and people in fintech and and I think particularly what's interesting about this story is it being backed by Tiger Global, they are notorious for looking for large scale opportunities in new markets that no one else is going to. And they're very vocal about that as a strategy. Yeah, it's definitely one to watch. I mean, if your strategy is sort of zigging when everybody else is zagging, that's always an interesting thing to do. You've got to, you've got to highly recommend your uh, or, or highly rely on your intelligence, I guess, or the information that you're getting. But uh, uh, Simon, on that point, I mean, there's always lots of talk about, uh, you know, uh, the next unicorn around the corner. I know this is something you've uh, discussed a, a few times before. I know this is not really your main objective. That's obviously in terms of serving customers. But the sort of sign of success in terms of the scale of the operation is is always something to look at, isn't it? Yeah, it's almost a requirement to become a unicorn now. Can you even be a fintech? Can you be a consumer fintech without being a, a unicorn these days? Um, <laughs> no, seriously, I, I, look, obviously what, you know, the likes of Tiger and SoftBank and, uh, and others are doing um, is, I think, I think kind of demonstrating that when 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 you have it right and when when you connect with that with with when you get the right product market fit when you connect with that market opportunity um there is there is such potential for scale and obviously everyone's kind of like chasing to be to be on that side of things um but i i i don't know in my experience maybe there's a little bit of a a misconception from from founders as as to how easy it is to kind of cross the the chasm right and get onto the other side of that um once you're on the other side of it there it, it's a land awash with uh, with vc checks uh, ready to fuel your your enormous expansion but um believe me there's a lot of hard work to get there um and the only way to do that is is to focus on the customers and the product yeah i mean it's uh, the old saying of it's uh uh, it's not easy to get money when you need it, but it's really easy to get it when you don't. I, I think there's there's something in that to a certain degree, isn't there, in terms of that sense. But I think the um, the other thing I'd, I'd sort of say on the um, the unicorn part, which is uh, it, it kind of feels like you say for organizations where that's the thing that they're chasing, uh, the objective sort of becomes the, the wrong piece, you know. I do think there is a misconception in there sometimes that I wonder in a world where uh, you know, we've talked a lot before in, on the show about the difference between features, products, and businesses. But actually, if you're in a situation where you can't scale to a significant enough size that actually you can fend off or defend yourself from acquisition from other players, um, or that you've got the capital to, I mean, as you have done, Simon, to to broaden your beachhead to to have more relevance and generate different types of revenue as you go, then the sustainability of those models are, are difficult, aren't they, for for, for organisations? So I, I think to your point, it's almost like actually, if you don't get to a, a billion pound valuation, then can you can you sort of stop stop the storm that hits the wall every so often? Essentially, yeah, I think that's exactly it. That, that's the question that's kind of being asked, right? If you're not um, essentially, you're saying you know, can, can you be viable and sustainable? Uh, at, you know, a, a, a market cap of a few hundred million. It's got to make your mum proud to bit say your your company's worth a billion at some point as well. So we'll we'll come to that one on another show. Anyway, uh, my mum thinks it's great the company's worth a hundred million. <laughs> well, it makes it makes Christmas dinner a lot different, doesn't it? Anyway, all right. Uh, so we're afraid there was a load of stories that we just couldn't get to that we probably should have a bit of a canter down. So uh, as always, we're going to do a bit of a roundup. Benjamin, do you want to get us going on that? Yes. So the first story is from the Times and the Sunday Times here in the UK, which is that the £50 contactless limit, payment limit 
is high enough for most customers. So the news is that the uh, £100 limit on contactless payments comes into effect on October the 15th, or has come into effect. Um, But a poll by the Sunday Times found that a majority of British customers um, are against the contactless limit being raised that high. An online poll found of 2,000 readers found that 45% would like the limit to be between uh, nothing and £50. It's currently or previously at £45. 19% wanted a limit between 51 and 75 and 37% wanted the limit to be above £100 or like the £100 limit. Um, so this is interesting. I remember when the limit was £10 and that was a real inhibitor on contactless payments because it was almost not worth bothering and it took people a while to, to set up the habit. I guess what this story tells us is um, everyone has become more comfortable with it. Um, the security fears that originally the industry had have not proved valid. Um, you know, there is a you know a tiny bit of a, a theoretical risk there, but essentially it's not happening. There's not wide-scale contactless fraud. It does still mean that if you lose your wallet or your handbag, of course, someone can spend can do a number of transactions before it's stopped, um, but that's low enough that the convenience is worth it. But interesting that customers are getting uncomfortable with the limit going much higher. Mm, interesting. I wonder if it's going to be one of those things that actually, I mean, as, as security settings increasingly become more sophisticated, that, you know, timeouts of apps or, you know, the limits around them, you know, really making it personal, it's, uh, it's a personal choice, isn't it, really? Exactly. And some banks are enabling you customers to start doing that, to set their own limits, um, which Lloyd's is trying to do, for example. That sounds like a feature that uh, would really, really appeal to Helena's mum. It does, yeah. We're, we're, user testing, we're going to keep getting, uh, Helena, we're going to keep getting your mum on the show and just seeing if we can run features by her. But, She'd uh, love that. Anyway. She awesome. could be an influencer. Uh, She'd love that even more. Sounds good. We'll get some followings. Uh, so the other story, that, uh, one of the other stories that we had was over on the blog. This is uh, blockchain.com CEO says that the London's reign as fintech capital is definitely over in his words. So Peter Smith, co-founder and CEO of crypto financial services firm blockchain.com has claimed that London's reign as, win- as the world's fintech capital is over thanks to the impact of Brexit. Uh, speaking at Token 2049 conference in London, Smith said that from blockchain.com's vantage as a VC, uh, more crypto startups appear to be setting up shop in Europe than in the aftermath of Brexit than actually in the UK. Uh, according to Smith, the main reason is that it is no longer possible for companies to use license offered, offered by the UK regulator to passport their services into other parts of Europe. Um, I mean, this title says fintech, and then he goes on to talk about crypto. So, Fintech's obviously a lot broader than crypto. And actually, you know, there's nothing to suggest that in the investment rounds that we've been seeing into London, nor the amount of really significant organizations like Stripe, who are sort of setting up head, you know, big uh, established offices in, in London. So I'm not really sure that this is particularly valid in, the, in that sense. Are more and more crypto companies moving out of uh, or establishing in other areas, like absolutely, I can really sort of buy into that. Is there an impact of uh, the loss of passporting to other countries from a, a UK license? Uh, then absolutely, I can kind of see that as well. But there's a pretty well trodden path of people to get around that by using or applying for other licenses in other jurisdictions as well. So I don't know. This this doesn't seem like um, I, I, I don't I don't agree. Uh, to put it uh, to put it mildly, I guess. But uh, what do you think, Benjamin, on this one? I don't think Brexit has done the City of London a ton of good. Um, people voted for Brexit for a variety of reasons. I don't think one of those reasons was to make the City of London more successful. Yeah, there's, uh, there was not. Uh, there definitely wasn't a correlation between 
people in London voting for it or otherwise, I guess, was it in terms of that sense. But anyway, we'll move on. I think we could cover a whole... Uh, we started this whole podcast on a Brexit special. Uh, let's try and not make every episode a Brexit special. So our next story is um, from Altfi, and it's that PropTech, good lord, has bought a tenant bill splitting platform, Akasa. Um, so the lettings platform, good lord, has acquired a household bill splitting service, uh, Akasa. Uh, Akasa, which was formerly known as Splittable, which is slightly easier to say, is a bill splitting app founded in 2013 and used by some 200,000 students and house sharers to set up and pay for bills simply. Uh, good lord automates the lettings process for letting agents and landlords by putting out offer letters, contracts and rent payments all into a single place. Um, and this deal follows a previous deal by Good Lord where they acquired a referencing group Vouch um, in order to add tenant referencing capabilities to the platform. Um, and so Good Lord will incorporate the, the new technologies into its platform um, enabling it to add more value to tenants using the Good Lord platform and create new opportunities for agents. Um, so I think this is completely logical. It's an adjacent innovation. You know, if there's another business out there that's got a capability that you can add to your platform that makes your platform more valuable to your your customers, it's a totally logical thing to do. Um, it makes complete sense. Um, and property tech is, uh, you know, is, a, is a rapidly growing market. Um, so yeah, I think this this deal makes complete sense. I didn't look at the valuation to work out whether it was a good deal for them or not, but the the strategic logic is obvious. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, PropTech, there's lots of interesting things in there. Can't tell you how much I enjoyed you uh, saying good Lord, like uh, at least 10 times in that story as well. I feel like it made it. I'm not going to lie. But uh, but anyway. All right. We better move on to the, the last story of uh, the week. Uh, this was covered in various different places. Uh, I actually saw it walking through London Liverpool Street quite bizarrely. And I thought it was like a prank, if I'm honest with you. But Star Trek's William Shatner has blasted off into space on Blue Origin rocket. Uh, Hollywood actor William Shatner has become the oldest person to go to space as he like he doesn't need that does he he's going to space why do you have to bring up that he's the oldest guy to go to space that's just just rude you know uh, okay the 90 year old who played Captain James Kirk uh, in the Star Trek films and TV series took off from the Texas desert with three other individuals Mr. Shatner's trip on the rocket system developed by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos lasted about 10 minutes. Uh, the team were given a couple of days training, although there was nothing really major for them to do during the flight other than enjoy it. Uh, the rocket and capsule system known as New Shepard is fully automatic. Everybody in the world needs to do this, said Shatner after landing. Is this just a nice thing? Have we just sent an old guy to, to space because he used to be in a TV program about space? Like, Is that... Is that weird? I mean, Helena, what do you think? Is this just like a nice day out for him? I just think the world's gone mad, hasn't it? I can't believe that he's gone to space. I think oh, I think it's funny that he ended with everyone in the world needs to do this. Like this is a really cheap venture for him to go on. I don't think they disclosed the price of his ticket. In fact, I don't think he paid. But we know that they were selling um, seats of a, of a similar ilk. Or I, I read somewhere, I'm sure I read somewhere that... Um, Branson's selling to space seats for like 330 grand or something. So if you're up there for 10 minutes, 33 grand a minute, and everyone in the world should be should be doing it. I'd like to see a world with that much money in it where everyone can afford a 33 grand a minute holiday to space. 
I'd, I'd take like a week in Cyprus right now, wouldn't you? Like honestly, like I don't, I don't need to go to space. I just miss traveling. Like uh, going anywhere would be lovely. <laughs> Leave you know? the UK would be lovely. Exactly, just anywhere. Like I'd just take a week off, more worldly, really. But uh, it's, uh, yeah, it is a, it is a strange one, isn't it? But um, I don't know, Benjamin. Do you think this is just a nice thing? Is this the, is it sort of the world getting really deeply meta? Like uh, Captain Kirk's gone into space. Yeah, I'm sure that's the whole thing. I mean, I, I imagine he's a huge spaceman. I'm sure he loves, you know, loved space from childhood and always wanted to be an astronaut and ended up on a TV show. Um, so for him, wonderful. But yeah, to Helena's point, I mean, it's a heck of a lot of money. And is that really the thing that the world needs to be focusing on is putting people into space? There are so many bigger problems that will, you know, that can be solved in the world. Um, well, well, it's interesting that the criteria for getting selected to go and do this is like being in a long-running TV program. Do you know what I mean? It's like, how many people train to go to space? And we sent some bloke who did it on a TV program for like, you know, yeah. 10 years, 20 years ago or whatever it was. You know, it seems uh, seems quite bizarre. I know, Simon, you're a Star Trek fan? Uh, I was always more of a Star Wars guy myself. Uh, yeah, me too, actually. Me too. I, I think that Prince William put it quite well, right? Uh, there was, a, there was a, uh, an interview with him on BBC yesterday where he said humans would be much better off focused on uh, what they can do in the world rather than worrying about getting up to space. That's true. Well said. Well said. Every, everybody's always running away from their problems, but we're not all running away to space, are we? So, uh, but uh, anyway, on that deep note, we better wrap it up. Uh, thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people learn a little bit more about you, Simon? Um, you can follow me uh, on LinkedIn. You connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, it's very easy, actually. LinkedIn.com slash in slash Simon Rabin. Um, or if you fancy uh, a great savings app that's going to give you the best return on your savings, um, it is getchip.uk, and you can find us in the App Store or Google Play. Just search for chip. Very good. Helena? Yeah, you can find us on raisingpartners.com, or if you'd like to find out more about raising money, what it takes to raise money, all the steps you need to have in place to raise money for your business, then you can visit us at uh, runway.raisingpartners.com. I love a chat, so come and chat to me. Sounds Post good. Me all your questions about fundraising. Awesome. Uh, Benjamin. Hello, yep. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, like Simon, um, and uh, 11fs.com. Very good. Yeah, I'm a LinkedIn guy these days. Uh, all right, everybody, thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you'd like to give us any feedback, feel free. You can find us on pretty much every social media channel at these days. Just search for 11FS or from Deck Insider. If you want to drop us an email, feel free to do it. It's just podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.